This is Designing the Revolution and it's Chapter 15, Organisation Leadership. So in the last three or four chapters, we've been looking at doing stuff. We've got stuck into the situation and we've been saying, right, we have to do mobilisation, we have to do action, we have to do media and such like. And what we're moving on to now is something a lot of people don't think about, but definitely does have to be thought about, which is who's going to do the work? <laughs> Always an important question. Who's going to do the work? And another important question is who's going to organise getting on with the work? Who's going to organise the organisers? And, and the great question of all time, which is how you make decisions. Who decides on the decisions? All right, so I'm going to do three chapters, three talks on all of this. The first one's broadly about power and leadership, which is what I'm going to talk about today. And then I'm going to look at the dynamo, which is this super exciting way of producing this positive feedback loop, this iteration of growth to get us into a place where we're ready to engage in the revolution proper, as you might say. And lastly, I'm going to look at the whirlwind wind dynamics, which is the ways in which an organisation I'm talking about, uh, uh, an ecology of different groups, is then propelled into the big time, as it were, through uh, events, um, through the collapse of the economy, you know, ecological breakdown events and such like. And that's going to be a segue, I suppose, into the next major part of this series, which is finally to talk about the revolution itself, as you might say, and how that is brought about, how it's constructed and, and such like. Okay, so hopefully that gives you the direction of travel. So as I said, we've looked at mobilisation and sociability dynamics in that. We've looked at action, we've looked at media. I'm going to bring it all together. There's various sort of little bits and pieces that are going to feed into that system, which I'll talk about. Um, and two sort of cautionary comments here is, is when you're listening to this, just try and catch yourself when you start thinking about these things out of time and space. Because as we've established in several of these talks now, one of the big problems with analysing things is people tend to uh, think about things in the abstract. And by abstract, I mean they don't include time and they don't include space. So more concretely, they don't think about iteration, that something happens, or at least there's a group of relationships between different nodes, between different elements in a system, and then that system reiterates itself and the name of the game is to get it to grow. So the connections between the categories, you know, the connections between action and mobilisation are just as important, if not more important, than the actual nodes themselves, the, the activities themselves. An organisation is all about looking at those things that people think are a bit invisible, which is these connections and how you get the whole thing moving along. So. Some of the themes broadly are going to be, as I just mentioned, the point of decision. Who makes decisions? How decisions are being made? How a system is operated, an organisation is op uh, coordinated rather. How you bring things together and develop them. And last and definitely not least, how we provide a culture that's going to create a good working environment or more excitingly, a sociability space and a joyfulness of working together, at least on a good day. <laughs> all right, so, um, first of all, I'm just going to look at this word power and try and, de yeah, try and create a more human, involved and grounded idea about the relationships between people. So as I've said in, in previous talks, 
what we're trying to produce here is a way of analysing and a way of producing culture and relationships which is radically juxtaposed to this reductive enlightenment, alienated, atomized, and such like grid that's imposed. And this, this paradigm is what you might call the metaphysical or the foundational basis of both the right and the left um, in the reformist space, in the neoliberal space. And what I mean by that is that power is largely looked upon as a dominating force, either a good force that's dominating because, you know, the top guys need to rule as you get in on the right and on the left wing, a dominating force that's bad because, you know, there's power and hierarchy and people are dominating each other. And that's a bad thing. And what I want to challenge is, is that relationships are a lot more complicated and nuanced and enchanted even than this reductive consensus between the left and right on the, on the domination definition of power. So just to be clear, I'm not dismissing the notion that domination can and should um, be looked upon uh, as a dominating relationship. There's no question that dominating relationships happen. What I'm saying is, is that's not the only game in town. When you're looking in detail about what actually happens and theorising on actually what happens when you go down the pub, you know, in a meeting, uh, in your family, blah, blah, blah. Okay. So, Again, just to remind ourselves, a way, an entry into this analysis is to look at the sociability, the relationships between people and the joy of people working together, having a humorous time, getting on and doing stuff together that constitutes, at least in a reasonably functional social system, as probably the main experience of people. And this is what Habermas calls the life world, and I've referenced him before, and we'll be talking about him again. So, if you remember, we talked about David Graeber and this notion of everyday communism, which is, you know, you're making a house, building a house, and someone asks you for the hammer, you don't hire the hammer out, you know, you don't go, oh, you know, it's a pound a minute. <laughs> it's just like, that's really dumb thing to say because there's trust and there's a relationship and there's a thickness of that connection. And for God's sake, you know, we need to get stuff done, give the guy the hammer. Similarly, in you might call those an everyday anarchism in the sense that most activities, you know, a lot of the time anyway, are based upon mutual aid or based upon, let's all get together for dinner you know, someone makes dinner, someone does this, there's a division of roles, but it's not set. Someone's quite good at doing something, so they tend to do something more than others. Or there's what might be referred to, and has been referred to as like a, a shifting hierarchy, uh, in so much as we can use that word. In other words, sometimes one person takes a lead, sometimes another person takes lead, and it's not a big deal, right? So again, not all the time by any means, but we sort of know how that works, at least I hope you do. And what the two elements of this sort of sociability system are trust and service, or at least those are sort of old fashioned words for sort of getting on. In other words, people have a, a fixed sense of trust about each other. You know, this guy's fine, I've known him for a long time. Yeah, sure, I'm gonna lend him my hammer. Uh, and service, which is, I'm going to organise the picnic, but I'm in service to everyone who's coming on the picnic because um, I just like the guys, you know, and I'm trying to create connection and feeling of love between each other because that gives me meaning and all the things we've been talking about. So if we envisage the social space as, as this invisible thickness of relationships sort of comes into the fore, and into this are these sort of power elements uh, which are constructed, you know, these power elements, these dominating elements are there. No one's disputing for a moment they're not, but there's something else as well. 
And, you know, just as a little aside, one of the big problems with a lot of what you might call cynical left-wing thought is, is this notion that all there is in, is in power. And arguably this guy Foucault is responsible for this, or at least largely responsible for it, because what he was saying and this postmodernist sort of suspicion of power thing is, all there is is power and all there is in relationships between people is this dominating logic, which, you know, to be blunt, is a gross exaggeration and pretty miserableist. Uh, let's put it like that. So I'm just going to expand into a few other elements which are, again, create a more pluralistic orientation on what power can and could be. So another phenomenon is the notion of power as responsibility. So this is a bit of a provocation because, again, as left-wing people tend to go, well, you know, power's privilege. It's, it's, you know, being able to do what you want, you know. But if you actually study groups, what you often find is a lot of people don't want power <laughs> because power brings responsibility and it, br it brings uh, visibility um, because you, someone has to make a decision. And whoever makes a decision can get criticised. They can get criticised because it's the wrong decision. And in left-wing horizontalist space, they get criticised because they're making a decision. And of course, in actual time and space, making a decision is inevitable. In other words, if you don't make the decision, you're making a decision to carry on as normal through time and space. So this abstraction of not making a decision doesn't actually exist in real life. Um, so you tend to get in horizontally spaces, in other words, spaces which deny the role of leadership or deny that decisions have to be made. You get this dysfunctionality of endless consultation, endless delay, endless question, question making. So it's one of the things which really winds me up in these sort of cultures is you say, we need to make a decision about X. And then people will say, well, yes, the thing about X is X, Y and Z. And, and that raises the question of, and then you move on to the next person. So what people do is just introduce more questions because that's what the culture expects. Because if someone actually tries to answer the question, then they're, in, they're accused of being dominating. You know, oh, you're actually suggesting something. Well, you know, the act of decision from a Fouconian point of view is the act of domination. Therefore, who wants to be dumb enough to ask to actually answer a question and propose a decision? So you get this, you know, utterly dysfunctional inertia culture. Um, the other thing, of course, is, you know, one of the taboos about power is it's actually quite boring because you have to go to loads of meetings and you have to analyse things. It takes a lot, a lot of cognitive uh, um, space in your brain. And why would you want to go and decide something when you could be watching Netflix you know, and all that sort of thing? So again, we're starting to build up a more complex picture of what this power thing could, you know, again, is one of the elements of it. So another thing is, um, another thing is speed. So, again, in sort of traditional horizontalist left-wing thinking, as I've just said, time doesn't exist. And the problem is time does exist. <laughs> surprise, surprise. In other words, there's deadlines. A decision has to be made by a certain point. And this is an objective reality. Let's say you're putting on an event. The event has a date. So decisions have to be made about what happens in that event by the deadline. There's no point deciding you're going to have such a band playing two weeks later. It's just objectively dysfunctional. So incidentally, there is an objectivity here. So what I'm sort of arguing is that power has been over-ideologicalized, as you might say. There's like an intrinsic practicality and physicality to the notion of doing stuff and therefore making decisions. So as a general rule of thumb, 
the more speed, the faster a decision has to be made, the more you need delegation uh, to have a few people making that decision. Because the process of making a decision with a lot of people, by definition, objectively takes more time. You know, if you have a go around with 20 people, it's a no-brainer. It's going to take longer than going, having a go around with five people. So power exists within a physical time-space universe. And if something has to happen quickly, then you're going to have to have some form of functional hierarchy. And I'll talk about that more in a minute. All right, so let's just delve into this a little bit more with this concept of coordination. So part of the system here is you have to make a decision. Making a decision requires some sort of functional hierarchy in a fast-paced environment. But also you have to implement the decision. So you've made a decision, you're going to have to have an event. And what the function of coordination is, is to overcome the siloization of different people within the system. So some people, you know, some people think the event starts at two o'clock. Some people think it starts at 12. You have to inform everyone it's actually starting, you know, at one o'clock. People need to be told that. The people who are actually doing the stuff don't want to do that because they want to get on with doing the stuff. Someone has to make sure that the whole thing's coherent and coordinated. This isn't intrinsically a dysfunctional thing. It's like objective. It's an objective reality to collective organisation. So another element of coordination is to overcome dysfunctionality within those silos. So let's say one of the working groups, you know, has to bring everyone, has to bring all the music equipment to the event. So you've coordinated them, they know when to come, they know what the bands are going to be, they know about the electricity supply, and then you're going to say to them, right, you know, are you going to get on and do the job and bring the music to, to the music equipment to the event? And then one of them says to you, we've got this guy in the group who just wants to talk all the time and he doesn't really want to do the event and he's been pretty abusive to the women in the group and, you know, I'm thinking of leaving because it's just a shit environment to work in. So the role of the coordinator is to protect the system as well. In other words, to say to that person, this is the behaviour we expect. And if at a certain point that behaviour hasn't improved, then I will have to ask you to leave the group. Okay. So again, like, this tends to be a bit of a taboo amongst some people in some spaces, but I can 100% guarantee on 35 years of experience organising people, there are points in time in an imperfect, fucked up society where you have to protect the system. And arguably this is one of the most important functions in terms of leadership, the enactment of responsible power and the coordinating function. Asking bad people to leave. And incidentally, that doesn't mean you're like being moralising about it. These bad people in commas might just be extremely individualist, which isn't necessarily a problem. Maybe they need to be going doing their own thing. And I'll talk about this a bit more in a minute. All right. So the third thing is like clarity. The function of, of coordination is to create clarity. So again, you've got these guys, you know, bringing the music to to the festival, the music equipment. They know, they know how they combine with the other groups, that's fine. You've asked some guy who's, you know, disrupting it all to leave, that's fine. But what's the point of the music festival? You know, what's the overall plan? What's the outputs? Why is it a good idea? So the role of coordination is to communicate the overall project. This is, this is why we need the music. This is, you know, the music equipment because we're doing this, we're doing that and we're going to mobilise and then we're going to take people down to London. So the, the coordination role is irreducible. That's what I'm trying to say. 
and obviously it can be done well and it can be done badly. So at this point what I want to do is just introduce a massively powerful case study in my view which is the A22 network which is um, if you don't know it is a, a bunch of civil resistance organizations around the western world and we'll be talking I think I'm going to do a whole chapter on them so I'll just briefly say that the, the at least half of these projects there's about 12 of them have become the biggest climate campaigns in their countries which is an amazing top line stat as you might say and what I want to propose to you is that the key reason I mean obviously there's a bunch of reasons but probably the single biggest and potentially the most in influential causal factor is that they have a leadership structure in other words they have something that drives the system and that's a small group of people um, and the reason for this is that when you're developing a project it's a very fast-paced fast-moving changing site of activity it's not where something's been going the same for a hundred years you know we do it like this this is what the outcome is you don't need you know arguably you don't need any management structure if you're going like we're going to do this and six weeks later we're going to do this and we need all these people to come in and then we're going to do that and then we're going to grow into an even bigger thing and then we're going to do mass civil disobedience that's a massively complex system and it's a massively fast pacing system and it simply cannot operate without a small group that's got executive control over it um, so my bottom line proposition here is that if you have a horizontalist system i.e loads of people come together and no one's in charge broadly speaking what you get is you get a massive as a general rule obviously you get a massive efficiency of mobilization because no one has to check with anyone and there's no control mechanisms so no no one's saying don't do that do this it's like everyone does their own thing and and you get loads of people doing things really quickly because you have no structure and because there's no leadership structure and no coordination structure to speak of and then as soon as it's got to a certain scale it it collapses for the very reason that it was so successful now remember if you've watched the chapter on on complexity i talk about this which is in a complex system something that's massively successful over time becomes massively unsuccessful for the very reason it became successful so in a mechanistic sort of frame of thinking that's like completely illogical but in a complexity system it it makes total sense because the causal factors that create success are only creating success in one particular context in another context they don't in other words like what's successful and what works is completely contextual so the reason of course why it collapses is because there's no coordination in other words everyone becomes siloed because no one's coordinating so it all becomes pretty inefficient secondly loads of tricky people move in because it's suddenly a sexy thing to be involved in and there's loads of power to be had and no one's there to stop them and thirdly it's like there's this big mass mobilization but no one knows what the point is apart from just mobilizing against the system so you sort of saw that for instance in Tahrir Square where you know loads of people went there and then it all collapsed and the bad guys were back in control within half a year because there was no uh, consolidation of the popular will as you might say um, so when you have a small group and you have you have this central control system i.e an executive it's still problematic right because unless someone's got a better idea there's no solution to human organization which isn't problematic what we're looking at here is degrees of problematicness so I read something once where it said you know the difference between organizations is 
they're you know either totally fucked or they're just half fucked <laughs> so that lowers your expectations a bit so what i'm trying to say here is that in the a22 network we go we go and you know there's six people in spain and they want to set up this project there's only a 50 percent chance of success because Everything depends upon the quality of those people and the culture and the organisational capacities and their character, their characters, to use an old-fashioned word. So half the time they will all collapse. But if they get through that stage and, and then start to grow and they're a consolidated group, then 50% of the time you're going to produce the biggest climate campaign in, in their country. Um, that's a little bit reductive, okay, there's more to it than that. But I can't emphasise enough how important this, this point is. So you're saying with the horizontalist, you know, mobilisation, 100% of the time, I'm being serious, 100% of the time, just collapses back again. Okay, 95%. <laughs> with, with a functional hierarchy central executive, um, then you're going to succeed 50% 50, 50 of the time. So... You know, unless there's something else better out there, we're going for the functional small leadership executive model. Okay, so let's look in a little bit more detail about how this model works of leadership, uh, taking into account the more complex uh, analysis of the notion of power we've just been talking about. So, Using this A22 methodology, there's, there's certain rules of thumb. First rule of thumb is that the group has to have about eight people in it. So notice, this is not about, you know, creating some Stalin or some Napoleon sort of, you know, extreme hierarchy routine. The reason eight people is good is because if you just have two or three people, dare I say it, one, it's no surprise they're going to make loads of bad mistakes because there's not enough feedback in the system. If you have more than eight people, and this is a mathematical thing, as you start adding the 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th, 23rd person, the quality of the decision-making goes down in two ways. N number one is the likelihood of the 9th person having a point which one of the eight people is not going to say is pretty small, right? Because eight people is covering quite a lot of the system. And certainly by the time you've had 25, the 25th person, I mean, the likelihood they've got a bright idea that someone else hasn't is pretty much zero. Secondly, of course, when you're in actually the physical, the physics basically of a meeting are such that the number of connections between people goes up exponentially as the absolute number of people goes up linearly. So, you know, let's say for the sake of argument, if there's six people, there's, you know, 30 connections. If there's 10 people, there's 100 connections. If there's 20 people, there's a thousand connections. I don't know. Someone can go and do the maths. But it just goes off the scale. And you probably noticed this if you've been in loads of meetings, like, you know, spent my life in meetings. If you have more than eight people in the meeting, it just starts to get clogged. And people don't enjoy it. They just don't enjoy it because you're just sitting there while someone's waffling on about something. And you don't really want to be in the meeting because that's not what you want to talk about anyway. So you've got this group. Another reason for having eight people, of course, is, is that's fairly robust. If someone, you know, has a big tantrum or something and leaves, there's seven people left. If there's three or four people, if one person leaves, you lost 25% of your key group. So in other words, the organisation becomes less dependent upon one particular individual, but you've got a small enough number of people to make decisions quickly in this fast-moving context. And these people have to be dedicated to their job. You know, as the thing develops, they have to meet two to three times a week. And they, they combine the strategy function with the coordination function which, you know, there's various literatures on whether or not that's problematic or not. But for, let's say, for the sake of argument, particularly in the first, you know, until you get up to 500 people in your system, the beauty of having the strategy team and the operations team together is you've got the, the intelligence of frontline operating, coordinating, feeding into the strategy. The strategy doesn't make any sense unless you actually know what's happening on the front line. And I'm sure many people watching this have got that experience of people making strategy and they just, they go like, that's ridiculous because we don't have the resources to do it or something like that. So you have like one day strategy meetings because you need to be 
bringing things together and looking at the system. And then in terms of operations or coordination, you need to be meeting you know, regularly, three times a week. Okay, so what's happening with that? Oh, that's going astray. Okay, someone's going to go and sort out that. Someone's going to try and troubleshoot. Oh, there's not a document for that. Okay, I'll go and get the document. So you've got this continual flow of feedback and response in the system. Then the next step is to make the working groups. So then the working groups have a particular function and in the civil resistance space, the functions are you know, mobilization, actions and media in terms of frontline activities. And then arguably, you know, you've got this service, service groups like tech and mediation, you know, people care um, um, and, and such like, right? It's a bunch of the finance fundraising. The key point here is not so much what the nodes are, right? Remember, the nodes are important, but that's not really the main show in this chapter. What we're looking at is, is the bridges or the links between those nodes, and they are populated by this function of, of coordination. So these, these working groups are set up, and they're giving a, given a brief, and then they have autonomy within this brief to get on with stuff. And the, the subtlety and nuance here is what what this whole political enlightenment, you know, left-wing suspicion paradigm does is it juxtaposes autonomy and limit, which is stupid in the real world because autonomy ultimately always has a limit. And of course, you can't have absolute limits because nothing gets done. You need to have some autonomy. So the name of the game, of course, is again to have a template. This is what you have to do. And then within that template, you, can, you have autonomy and that that has definition and clarity. And that's what the coordinator does is provides that clarity. You know, your, your job, guys, is to go and bring the music equipment to the event. You're not supposed to be going off and sorting out the, the toilets, right? Your job is to do that. Within that role, you have autonomy. If you want to bring it in a van or you want to go and get Joe's, you know, bike or whatever it is, that's your, that's your patch. And those groups only have eight people in a game. And as they become bigger, they subdivide into, you know, different bits of music equipment, let's say, or whatever it is, so that you get this balance between human scale organisation, i.e. everyone's in groups of eight, and things are tied together with this coordinator uh, function. And this whole process, if it's done skillfully enough, is not some top-down thing, right? It's a top-down and bottom-up, or more to use a better language, it's an integrative system. In other words, when the, when, the, when the the coordination group meet, they will have reports. So someone will come in from the media group and do a 15-minute chat. So it humanises the connection with that group and you get to realise that there's a big deal going on there and it needs to get sorted out or they've got a really good idea and then you then integrate it into the strategy. So people come and actually physically come to the meetings, they give short reports, you know, every week finance person comes and such like. Then you've got the issue of um, bringing people into the system and populating it. Okay, so this is where the culture comes in. So when, when, a, when an organisation is quite small, you have to have this really clear idea of what you're doing and you you can't just let anyone come in because then number one they might have a totally different idea which might be cool but that's not what you're doing and number two they might just be a really crap person <laughs> and be just really disruptive ideologically or you know psychologically or just be egotistical or whatever so the deal is is you do like the project i'm in at the moment is we're going out doing workshops and the function of the workshop is obviously to look at something, you know, some subject, but it's also to suss people out and go, haha, that person's intellectually cool, they're a good team player, and, you know, they're, 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 they're a quality person. For this project, right, you're not making an ultimate moral judgment of them. Anyway, the upshot of it is, is you headhunt them. In other words, you take them to the side at the end of the meeting, say, look, this is what we need to do. I want you to help me to do this. And once they've done something with you, then you ask them to take on the role. So it's this gradual integration process. But it starts off with you going, you're a cool person. Can you help with this? Okay, then more systematically, as things get bigger, 
then there's two key elements to the system is you've headhunted people, you've got an intuition they're good, or other people start headhunting you that are embedded in your culture, and you give people a one month trial. So you're saying to people, look, we want you to be, you know, coordinate, bringing music to the festivals, and you're, you're here for a month, and if it doesn't work out, no hard feelings, right? You know, or maybe you think we're crap as well. So, you know, shake hands and, and leave. So you're pre-framing it so you get more information into the system because this guy might look great, but he might never turn up on time and blah, 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 start being abusive, in which case you lower that person's expectations so that even when you do ask them to leave after a month, they don't have a major tantrum and start putting on social media that you're all fascists or whatever. Or if they do, then, you know, that's just bad luck. Okay, then there's the induction process. So when you're bringing people into the culture, the service trust culture, then there's an induction process. So arguably when you're really big, this needs to be a day, but if you're below 20, 30, 40 people, then it just needs to be an hour or two, people being headhunted, you know, various people have taken soundings on them. Yeah, we want to bring this person in to do media. So they have an hour, two hour induction. And at that induction, you're gonna talk about, it's a trust-based organization, it's a service-based organization. What that concretely means is if you're asked to do something else, you're gracious about it. Obviously, if you've got a problem, who you talk to, you know, basic good management stuff. And then you're saying the single biggest important thing you have to do is be a team player. What a team player means is it's give and take in the meeting. You turn up on time, you're calm, you know, at least most of the time, you're conscientious, you, you're nice to people, you're not sexist, racist and all that crap. And... And that's more, this is the critical point, that's more important than being super cool at creating computer programs, right? You can have someone that's the best media operator in the world. Doesn't matter. If they're not a team player, then they're not going to work because the system is more important than the individual. In other words, you're creating this system of sociability where it's a joy to work with people, you know. Every now and again, you're going to have a bit of a row or something, but fundamentally, it's a functional space in terms of sociability dynamics. Um, and that's what team player is all about. In other words, like it's the team that creates the solidity and creates the social change. It's not the individual. The individual create is it, the individual is the node. Remember, it's like the actual collectivity that creates this uh, this functional system. And as I said a minute ago, is let's be clear, some people aren't team players, but they're really cool guys. So what those guys need to do is work in an ecological system with the process. So you might have some super nerdy guy who wants to do computer programs, that's great. You just outsource that, as it were, and say to him, look, I've got a job for you to do, or you're up for doing it. He doesn't have to come to meetings, you can just get on with it. And there's people out there, and that's totally fine, right? It's totally fine. This is not like if, you want, if you're not part of the collective, you're some sort of dysfunctional human being. That's nonsense. Um, okay, so you're building up this system of sociability, this organisation, you're iterating on it, which we'll talk a bit about in, a minute, uh, uh, in, the, next si in the next chapter. And, um, and you're drawing in this ecology around your system. So, you're, you know, a bunch of people say, we don't really like what you're doing. You say... Okay, so you're gonna to have to leave because you're not part of this vision. And you say, but that's good because you can set up your own, your own organization here, and then we can work together. We can go to London, have a demonstration, and you come with your particular political philosophy or your, your own particular uh, uh, organizational philosophy. That's cool, we just turn up on the day. So it's not zero sum game, which you get in these reductive power models. And as a slightly amusing aside, of course, when you do get dysfunctional individuals ideologically or personality-wise, you know, really egotistical, or they have this ideological horizontalism, which is completely like dysfunctional, it's, it's well, <laughs> I was going to use the word funny, but it is sort of funny because, because what you're saying to these guys, of course, is that's fantastic. Well done. You know, maybe we're wrong. Maybe I am wrong. You know, who knows? You know, I'm just some bloke at the end of the day. You go off and do it. And then they are forced, of course, to look in the mirror and actually take responsibility for their dysfunctionality and if they don't succeed they'll find out they don't succeed and they'll only have themselves to blame rather than doing this 
you know, rather immature, you know, the leaders are oppressing me, that's why I'm unhappy um, routine. All right, so let's just look at the broader, the broader system and the role of design in, in the broader system. So in this dysfunctional, you know, neoliberal, miserable society we're in, one of the things we've identified is once you, once you create an identity space, once you create an organisational culture, once you get in the media, once you start doing stuff, once it looks pretty cool, these dysfunctional individuals will come into it. And if you have an open system, a totally open system, then they'll self-select themselves into leadership roles because leadership roles will attract uh, dysfunctional, egotistical people. As the central group, you have to protect that. And you protect that system by not giving local monopolies. Now, this is quite complicated and we're going to talk about it more. But one of the problems with many social, you know, many social movements in, in the Western world is, you know, you've got the horizontalist problem, which is they rapidly expand and then collapse. And then you've got the inertia problem that you create a lot of structure and then groups form and then they don't want to do what you want them to do because there's some guy who's taken control of them and or they've been infiltrated and all the rest of it and they say well we're Bedford you know we're the Bedford branch and you're going oh my god we've lost Bedford to the you know these hard left people or whatever so what what has to happen is you have to say right okay you're a team and the coordinators are only there to the extent that the central team wants them to be there. So that's one control mechanism. The other control mechanism is, look, you're just organizing for this event, for this campaign. At the end of that campaign, we're reforming the groups. So if half the people in Bedford go, oh my God, you know, this guy is terrible, then they can go, oh, we're gonna, we're gonna create a new, a new Bedford group. We're gonna be the Bedford Rovers or whatever, right? And they're gonna create their new group. And the guy who's running the group, Little Dictator, doesn't have any constitutional power to stop them. This is hard, hard design. This is an example of hard design. In other words, like it fundamentally um, responds to a fundamentally hard problem, which is the appropriation of local chapters by tricky people. Um, the other thing is, is, is having a really clear template of what you want people to do, particularly in the dynamo areas we'll talk about in the next, the next uh, talk. In other words, people need to know what you've already worked out works instead of going off and doing their own thing. And to enculture people into that in an effective way, you have to spend time with them. So this is the notion of, you know, pulling your sleeves up, or oh, I've forgotten the phrase, and actually being there, doing the leafleting with them, uh, actually organising the, the, the meeting with them, ringing them up every day and going, have you got your stats in? How did that meeting go? Okay, so if you do it like this, things will work better. Now, a lot of people will say, oh my God, that's going to take loads of time. But the whole point is, is it's an investment in enculturing a group into good practice and once you and then you're going to get a return on that investment in the sense that once that group's functional because you spent so much time on it then they're going to be okay for the next half year as opposed to setting a group up and then they could become encultured into some level of dysfunctionality and then you spend the next six months trying to sort them out and you're not because you know you've lost the horses bolted as you might say so micromanagement, I know has a bad press, but it's, it's, we need a more sophisticated analysis, which is micromanagement is essential at the beginning of a process, particularly, dare I say, with young people, because they don't have much life experience, they don't have much work experience. And I'm, and I'm not being disrespectful there, that's just a, a fact, as you might say. And the last thing is, and again, we're going to talk about this in future chapters, is we've identified one of the problems and all the left-wing sort of Fuconian people will say, you know, horizontalist people will say, ah, ah, but you've got this central group, Roger, and they're going to get corrupted 
by all this power they've got. Absolutely, totally agree. But this is a nuanced critique, right? It's not an absolute. It's not deterministically going to be like that because they might be really great guys, right? And they might be able to resist that, that sort of egotism. But you're quite right in the medium to long term, this group has to, has to be uh, disciplined itself. So what we're broadly looking at there is to have a sortition assembly, a selection, <coughs> a selection of people who have been selected by chance <coughs> to constitute some sort of board, which, which is a counterbalance, as it were, to the strategy operations team space. And because they're not self-selected, they're going to be ordinary, decent people as a general rule, particularly if they work together and they're going to be a counterbalance to the power of, um, of this central leadership group. There's a lot more to say about that, but I'm just leading you into that area and we'll be talking more about it. All right, where am I up to? I think I've got 10 minutes. Um, all right, so I'm just gonna take a little different sort of take on it just for the last 10 minutes. Um, so really, this, this chapter is called Organisation Leadership, and I've mainly talked about power structures, but the bottom line is, is power is enacted through leadership. And so I want to take a little look at this leadership concept. Um, I'm a bit nervous about doing it because you know how it is, there's a thousand and one bucks on bloody leadership. Um, but I'm going to give some pointers for this project, this civil resistance sort of project. And I want to use this quote from Shakespeare for better or worse. So this, I, this isn't the exact quote, obviously, but um, in one of his plays, one of the guys says, um, people are born great, they achieve greatness, or they have greatness thrust upon them, uh, which is always one of my jokes is, you know, greatness is thrust upon us. Anyway, so, um, so let me just take these in three steps. So some people are born great. So this is a real taboo in sort of progressive left-wing circles, horizontalist circles. But unfortunately, um, dare I say it, it's, it's, it's ideological. The fact of the matter is, in any, in any human group, there will be people who are really good at leadership which is a complex of different abilities. So let me make clear, it's not an absolute ability to leadership. It just means they're really good at that complex of, of uh, functions. In the same way as some people are really good at painting pictures and some people are really good at playing music. You know, there's always a normal distribution curve on any human functionality. And you've got the long tail. Some people are really bad at one side. Some people are really good. And the fact of the matter is, is these people, to a certain extent, are born to lead. They've got these characteristic, and obviously there's environmental processes, and they have massive power to actually enhance a movement if there's various cultural and system elements to it. And one of the key elements to this is that they are not actually the people in formal power. So a classic example of this is Gandhi. So Gandhi was enormously, you know, talented guy. Let's not beat around the bush. He had loads of problems, but, you know, compared with millions of other people, he had charisma, had organisational ability, he had strategic sense, and he had an enormous sense of humility. Um, didn't make him perfect. But the point is, is he didn't, he wasn't a Stalin, right? He wasn't a Putin. He didn't control the Congress party in India. What he was, was what you might call the source in some literatures. They call, in other words, he had a lot of power, but he didn't have formal power. There was the Congress party with their, you know, their leader and what have you. But if, if Gandhi came up with a great idea, it was likely to be a great idea, so people accepted it. And you see a similar dynamic with Martin Luther King, where everyone would get together, there'd be 25 key organizers in the room they'd have this big discussion you know they'd 
all fall out with each other, walk out of the room. It was all passionate stuff. And at the end of the weekend, they'd start to be looking at creating some format, uh, you know, some strategy of what they were going to do. And the role of Martin Luther King, broadly speaking, was to be the cool guy in the room who sort of raised things that no one else had thought of. And there was, you know, some people sort of said in the books written about this process that it had to go through Martin. So if Martin didn't think it was a good idea, they probably wouldn't do it. But Martin Luther King didn't have, he wasn't initiating. He was like orchestrating that space and, and, and putting, you know, ideas into the mix and, and facilitating it and bringing it together. And, um, and it had the functionality, right? So this, this idea that this is, you know, this reductive left-wing suspicion routine of Martin Luther King comes into the room and dominates everyone in some sort of reductive way. That's not how it worked. Which isn't to say, right? Which isn't to say there weren't problematic elements to it. But we're doing a real-world analysis here. So this connects with this idea of Taoism. I don't know if you've read this sort of philosophy. But this is basically what this philosophy is saying is, is the most powerful people no one really knows about, right? But, you know, they're the people who get things done and don't have the big ego, but are very talented and influence things behind the scenes in a productive way. And without wishing to sound too big-headed, as it were, this is broadly what I do when I help groups uh, work. The first time I have a meeting with them, I'm going to go, I'm not in charge, you're in charge. If you want to get rid of me, then you can. I have no formal power. I'm only here to advise you. If after three weeks it's not working, just get rid of me, right? That makes me ent entirely accountable to them. They have formal constitutional power to say, we don't want you in the group anymore, Roger. And that keeps me on my toes, right? I'm not going to get lazy. I've got to work hard for them. And the bottom line is, if I don't come up with good ideas, then what's the point of having me anyway? And the paradox, of course, is because they have the formal power, I paradoxically have more power because I'm not, I'm not in competition with them. They're the people who decide. If I controlled it as well, then there could be like egotistic, ego problems in the group because some will say, well, Roger's only getting his way because he's this bloke who's in control, you know. But that's not the case when I'm in this sort of advisory role. So, again, a bit more sophistication about being born great and these individuals. Yeah, you know, we're not juxtaposing, bringing them in, make dictator. We're not shaming them and pushing them out. What we're doing with these people is saying, yeah, bring them in, but have a sophisticated process of... of um, of, of integrating them into this, this, this power system. Okay, so achieving greatness. Okay, so this is important, obviously, is, is what we want to do is structurally and systematically create a leaderful movement. So there's been some discussions in some of the literatures, you know, a leaderless movement, leaderful, whatever. I don't really care what phrases we use. It all depends what we're trying to say. Concretely, let's talk about this concretely. You've got, let's say you've got a thousand people in your space, right? Some of those people have the potential to be leaders, potential to be coordinators, but to be strategic thinkers. And they have to have a certain amount of natural ability or charisma. There's always going to be a bit of biological determinism in there. But, you know, let's be nuanced about that. That process is only going to come out through environmental design. In other words, the culture and processes of, of the space they're in. So the name of the game here is not tokenism, right? It's not like, oh, that person's, you know, a person of colour, or oh, that person's a woman or whatever, and we're just going to parachute that person simply because of the group they live in, they, they, they belong to. What we're, what we're going to do, and this is the Holy Grail, is to systematically empower that group as a project in and of itself. So let's say someone's got potential, they're going to come to a training event. And in that training event, they're going to receive some cultural ethical education. If you want to be a good person, if you want to give a, live a good life, then you need to transcend your ego. You need to go into service to the common good. You need to trust people. You need to be humble. 
You don't want to be an arsehole, all this sort of stuff. So that's part of the equation. The second thing is they have to learn how to run a project. And that's complicated. You know, there's lots of technical stuff in that. And we're going to talk about that more in the next, the next chapter. Um, and thirdly, they have to be able to manage people. They have to be good at relationships. And that means they have to be ethical. That's why they haven't got to have a big ego, right? They can't be dismissive and horrible to people. They need to be just in their relations and then people respect them. They might say, well, I disagree with this guy, but he's basically an okay guy. You know, he's trying hard. Secondly, they have to be kind to people. You know, people in a sociability space need to feel like they're valued. So you say nice things about them. You invite them to dinner. You know, you take them to one side and ask them how they're doing or all this sort of thing, right? And lastly, and definitely not least, there has to be some humour. Humour is like enormously important because it dissolves a suspicion culture. Uh, it makes people connected, particularly self-depreciation. And, you know, I do this all the time. I'm a sort of jokey sort of guy. But, you know, if someone's a bit suspicious of you, then you tell them, well, you know, maybe you're an idiot. So it's this humble self-depreciation. No one's, no one's God, right? Everyone sits on the loo. Everyone, you know, fucks up. We're just trying to do the best we can. I'm in this role. I'm trying to do it. If you think I'm doing shit, come and talk to me about it. That sort of approach. So then one, one element of achieving greatness, as it were, then is you're bringing a lot of people in um, and into this course, this training education process. And then afterwards, you're mentoring them, right? In other words, someone who's good at doing the job is is um, is seeing them every week and saying, how, how are you getting on, Joe? You know, what's, what's the deal here? Oh, I'm not sure about this. Okay, you know, this is how you do this. Um, and then, of course, they're off and away, and at least in principle, or they're taking feedback from their space. So the point here is this whole, you know, toxic thing about marginalised groups, you know, is half right and half wrong, you know, white blokes and all this sort of stuff. Yeah, white men have traditionally had loads of power as a general rule, but not absolutely. Obviously, they abuse that power. And what's the solution? The solution is a systematic program of empowerment for young people of colour, you know, for young people generally, for women, for people from a particular part of the country, whatever that marginalised group is. And this is the methodology, as opposed to this shortcut process of going, oh, there's a black person, you know, let's ask them to do something. And this takes investment and it's a strategic objective to get this diversity into the space. All right. So the last thing is thrust into greatness. I'm not going to talk that much about this, but, you know, this is my end message to you all watching this video. I don't know. I think it may be a thousand people. Where are we? Where are we? Beginning of April. So beginning of April 2022, 23. You know, loads of people started off watching this series. And I've said this quite a lot in my videos. By the time you're like six episodes in, you've basically got the people who are either, you know, born great, they're going to achieve greatness or most likely they're going to be thrust into greatness. So you might be watching this video going, oh, I'm not the, you know, I'm not the leadership type. Tough shit. Basically, you are because you're watching this video. In other words, like we haven't got the time in at this moment in history in 2023 for people to be falsely modest. If you're watching this video, there's a good 75 percent chance that you can be thrust into greatness. You will be thrust into greatness and you're just going to have to do your best. And that's no bad thing because it brings people on and that's what life's about and all the rest of it. So that's my, that's my challenge is you're just going to have to do it. And the prediction, of course, is your fear and your humility is the very element that's going to make you successful paradoxically because you're not going to be going in saying, I'm great. You know, you're going in saying, I'm really not that good at it. And you're going to be conscientious and nervous about it. And that's a really good leadership skill as you might say. All right. So, you know, in some ways this, this chapter is, you know, it's fast and furious, isn't it? There's loads more to be said. 
but the fundamentals are leadership is absolutely critical at this time in history. Having a thick analysis of the power relationships is critical and this has to be actualized by a whole bunch of systems that are going to be developed uh, uh, over the coming chapters. And what we're going to do next is take this leadership system and then put it into creating a dynamo system, i.e. a system that rapidly increases in its capacity and the number involved in its social effectiveness as a stepping stone to this revolutionary period. So the next chapter is really important, okay? <laughs> it's really good. So I'd see you then. Thanks.